So welcome to the session on the 1st of June 2019. We've just been meditating, so we all feel pretty centered. And we're talking about this sense of now, the presence. Or we could call it presence awareness. Does it take any effort to become aware of the present once you direct the awareness to it? Isn't it always available? And yet we miss it because of mind, thoughts and emotions and apparent activity. This sense of presence, presence awareness, is what they say is the only constant. It's the only thing that never changes. To, to recollect that if you thought about any other point in your life up to now, that if you were to direct your awareness to the present, that it would always have been there, feeling essentially exactly the same as it does now. Or in the next moment, it's essentially the same nature, isn't it? It's, it's the one thing that within it, all things change. Within it, all things are held. And yes, there is movement, change, difference. But the, the, the field in which it all occurs is unchanging. And the yogis say this is the only reality. The only, true, the only truth is that which is held in the moment. So that's quite a comforting thought. If you're having a diabolically bad life, you can take comfort from the fact that whatever happens to you, if you can take refuge in the now, this is what Eckhart Tolle talks about when you mentioned him before, this idea of the power in the moment, in the presence, do you sense the power of this moment when you tune into it? It's everything is born out of it. Every single thing that's happening in the universe is contained in and is, and is constantly re being reborn into the moment so this is the space in which all reality occurs now the next step which is a bit of a logical leap it's a challenge for the mind to accept this is that the experience of now is essentially the same for everybody we're all, basically imagine like we're all fish swimming in the same ocean. This is the ocean that we're talking about. It's this field of awareness in which all things exist. We can call it consciousness as well. That the fact that you are conscious of your awareness is not a function of your mind. It's actually a function of this state, is what they say. I mean, that. Traditionally, we might want to believe that our brain is creating our consciousness. But in fact, the emerging view through neuroscience is that there is no part of the brain that correlates with consciousness. They cannot find, they can find where thoughts are, they can find where uh, sensory input occurs, sensory interpretation, all the different parts of the brain that govern vision and olfaction and hearing and that all have parts of the brain that are identifiable. But there is no part of the brain in which you can say that is where consciousness is located. And so the emerging view, and this is testing the limits of philosophy and neuroscientists and psychologists and anyone that studies the brain, is that there is an emerging view that consciousness is not actually a product of the brain. It's not created by the brain. But in fact, on one view, the brain is the receiver of consciousness, just like a radio is the receiver of music. The radio doesn't create the music. But if you didn't know, and you look at a radio, if you were, if say, a primitive person that had never seen one before, you're looking at the radio and you're imagining that the sound is a product of the radio. 
but we know because we know some of the science around it that in fact the radio is simply a receiver so the music is, was never in the radio it comes through the radio and it's 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 transformed by the radio into something that our senses can apprehend right it's turned from radio waves into sound waves that we can hear so consciousness is transforming through the brain into sensory experience so all that we're seeing feeling hearing touching tasting is essentially consciousness experiencing itself through our agency so what why does that matter it matters because the things which occur and and are born into consciousness and subside into consciousness are are not in in the in the yogic sense they're not what reality is they are ripples that are occurring on the surface of consciousness like waves in the ocean but the, the fundamental nature of this whole existence that we tap into when we meditate is the underlying state out of which all experience is born and the way that we know that is true is because we stop having thoughts when we meditate at some point the thoughts may quieten down were you aware of your uh, sense of taste when you were meditating mm. well, what happened to that and were you aware of your sense of touch mm. when you're meditating maybe initially but eventually when you're deep in the state what where did the sense of touch go where were, where were all your capabilities mm. when you're absorbed in the internal state of meditation what happened to them They were there, potentially they were still there if someone had called out to you, your name, they would have returned. But in that time where you're, you're the, the senses are turned within, they basically deactivate. And what are you left with? Just the pure experience of being, right? Wasn't that the state? It's just, just awareness itself. So what the yogis say is, that's, that's your clue. That's your clue as to the reality of your own nature is that thing that doesn't change, that is there independently sitting behind or transcending, if you like, the thoughts, the sensory experiences, emotions. Where were the emotions during meditation? Were they there? They were gone too, right? So isn't it funny that in the and where was your name was it there where was your sense of identity as mind body didn't that also retreat into the stillness so essentially what happens is that when we're meditating we're moving through and then moving beyond all the things that we would normally identify with as being us and we go into a deeper aspect which has no characteristics there are no labels there is no definition to the state and yet if I asked you was that state also you what would you have said did it feel authentic to you the experience was it an authentic experience I don't think I hypnotized you I didn't even give you any um, cues today I just said follow the breath into the stillness so if you contemplate that you'll see that when you erase it's a it's a concept it's a process of um, it's a process of elimination is what we're doing here when we meditate we're eliminating all that is transient all that changes and we're returning to that which never changes the, in, the 
intimate state of pure being. And so what the yogis say is that's who you really are. That's your, real, that's your true nature. Your name is not your true nature because you could change your name and you would still be you. If, you know, in the old days when women got married, they took on the name of their husband. Some still do. But did they change? Clearly not. Uh, my name is a different name in another language. If I go to another country, am I still me? Clearly I am. So if you go through the list of all the things, all the attributes that you think that you are, and one by one you, you neutralize them, you put them into, you, you cease to identify with them. If you take away all the sensory inputs and remove those, what you're left with is the essential, is the essential state of just being. Now, what meditation is effectively doing is putting you back in touch with yourself, with your true nature. And why is that, um, why, is, why do you think that's a, a good skill to have? Yeah. Eliminates everything else around. Yeah, let's let me recast the question. If um if your problem is suffering, if you have a problem with suffering, mental suffering, what does this process remind us of? When About, there was no suffering. Yeah, that it's not real. In, in, in the deepest sense, it's not real. That you get the detachment, you detach from the suffering. The suffering subsides. Let's say, I'll give you an example of suffering. Let's say um, someone is problematic for you in your life. Maybe you work with them and you, that your working life is a misery because you have to deal with this person all the time. You go into the meditative state you reconnect with your essential being. All thought, all memory, all association, all perception of that person is now no longer present. So within that temporary time of meditating, the, the suffering ends. Okay, well we get that. You could say, well that's just escapism. I could just as easily go and see a movie and achieve that, right? But, but there's another thing that's happening at the same time. And this is the power of the process is that by reconnecting and knowing yourself as this or as that capital T state you cease to identify with the thing that is susceptible to the influence of that which causes suffering in other words you no longer believe in, as a matter of experience not as a matter of intellectual convincing yourself but your experience is one now where you are not touched by the ups and downs of life because you're now back in a steady state that is simply the one that is observing the state of the observer right this is the state of detached detachment and and so you can still you're listening to what i'm saying now so you can still function, but you're now functioning, let's say, at a higher vibrational level, if you want to use that ex expression, or in a more detached state, where you become less susceptible to the influences of the world that are going to create suffering for you. So take stress as another example. Why are you stressed? Because mind convinces you that the thing that is required of you is fundamental, is very important. And if it doesn't turn out the way that you hope it will or you need it to, then somehow you're going to be vulnerable or diminished or uh, badly thought of or any of those things. 
right? Now, if, if you're operating within that frame of reality, I can't deny that, that those feelings are going to be very real. But the question, you then have a choice, is to say, well, I may not be able to get out of my work situation. Let's say it's something that you have to deal with. If you are able to detach from the consequence of the action and just focus on pure action itself, you're doing the work that needs to be done without fear of what might occur. Doesn't that alleviate the stress? If you can just be completely focused on what you're doing without thought of what someone might think or do. In other words, um, a purer form of action that is not tied to outcome would be the yogic way of acting. That would be called pure action. You become immunized against the opinion of others because ultimately you know that there is a deeper aspect of yourself which is more true, more enduring, more real, more authentic, that is independent of what's happening in the relative mode. So you cease to invest your sense of worth, tying that to action and outcome that you may not have any control over. Can you, can you conceptually take that on, that you are effectively, you are essentially worthy as you are in your in your sense of perfect being that is worthy is that worthy in your essence is that worthy is that perfect is that pure is that untainted that aspect of you is that susceptible to other people's opinion that state If you return to it each time, irrespective of what they've said about you, the state is the same. It's just as pure, just as perfect, just as free as it was last time you were there. So it shows you that, that the essential part of who you are is not contingent on what other people think about you or what other people do to you. So what I'm saying is that there are basically two aspects of your being, our being. One is the part that is within this changeable world where we have no control. We think we do and we try to have control, but really we don't. And that the game that we're playing is that we're playing out roles, essentially. Roles that we're given or that we've taken on. And, and that's, that's fine. That's what we do. That's, that's a function. But in the same way as the actor goes onto the stage, they're playing the role. And it's very convincing. In fact, the best actors have to, you know, method acting is where they have to assume the emotional state, the feeling of what it would be like to be that person. And then the performance becomes very convincing, doesn't it? When you see a good actor, they're in character, right? That's what being in character is. But at the end of the performance, let's say, I know that there are actors that remain in character throughout the entire shoot. <laughs> but at the end of the performance, at the end of the shoot, when they pack everything down and the cameras are gone, they return to, who, to their true aspect of who they are when they were out, outside of that role. Right? So how is it any different to what we're doing? in the sense that our roles can change. The context in which we operate can change. Aren't these just the same things as stepping on different stages? One time, um, we were a student. That was our role. And we played the role and a lot seemed to depend on it. And we got through that and then the role changed. And then we became 
a professional person or employed or whatever. But with the intimate sense of I am, the being, never changed. It never changes. And so that's the clue that we're given that there is a continuous aspect of being that is already perfect. But given that perfection is there, mm -hmm. and given that when we meditate we can bring it back and bring our senses back to it and cut out all of those things which are not positive in our lives, um, we, we can't do that at any given time in every day. So we're still going to be um, surrounded by negativity mm -hmm. from time to time. Mm -hmm. And it's bringing the, the real me back mm -hmm. that is difficult um, at, at certain times of stress or mm -hmm. certain times of difficulty. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy to find the real me. Mm -hmm. at, at any point in time unless I take myself away from what it is that's disturbing mm -hmm. and have a quiet meditation session and allow it to happen you can't do that every day of the week and okay. 24 hours of every day of the this week. is a great question so I would say initially that's true in the beginning that's true in the beginning Meditation is a binary process that you're either in it or you're not in it. Mm, I sense that. Right. So when you're in it, there's no problem. Mm. As you say, there's a retreat from the problem space. And then you have to go back into it. Now hopefully you get enough calmness that you've had enough peace has come to you that when you re-enter the problem space you get a little bit of buffering against the thing that you were, you were previously up against. But it's still there, right? I don't deny that. But here's the thing. Over time, the continual immersion in the meditative state starts to trigger a very mysterious and transformative and miraculous process. And what it is, is that over time, you, cease, you start to identify less and less with that being that is functioning in the world, your persona, your role, and you start to identify quite naturally with the deep inner stillness of the perfect presence of being as you. And so when that, and this is called the process of integration, it, in the beginning there are two yous in a way. There's this, this outside you, mm -hmm. and then there's deep inner you. But what happens is the boundaries begin to break down and that the deep inner you becomes the dominant form of identity. So are you saying that the, um, the perfection and the stillness, um, providing we work at it with it and, and um, repeat it, transcends those other times in our lives? It becomes the new reality and you become much more of the observer where these things are happening. You know, things are happening, but I'm not those things. That's just a play. It's not critical to this overriding experience that is always present and, it's, and it becomes joyful. Did I mention the joy part of this? The bliss? <laughs> so every, as you keep immersing yourself into state, deeper into the state. Firstly, your first encounter is one of peace and stillness, right? And that's a sure sign that you're actually meditating effectively. If you're getting a little bit of peace and stillness, that's great. That's a sign that it's true. Particularly if an hour after you meditate, you still feel a little bit of that peace hanging around. So that's the first stage, but it gets better than this. As you go deeper and deeper and over the time that the neurology is starting to change, remember the neuroscience now tells us that the brain is actually changing, that, that all the instruments of perception are changing. And there's a part of the brain called, this is really fascinating, called the default mode network, which is the monitoring of self, of just being. 
so it's monitoring it it's not the cause of consciousness remember what i said but it's the part that is aware that if i say become aware of your being right now in this moment your existence it's easy to do right so become aware of the fact that you exist yeah that's the default mode network now what happens is that you start to get development in that part of the brain i'm talking just neurologically now not energetically or anything else and so the experience increasingly becomes that i am that i am just this you could say field of energy that is observing and is very joyful that there is nothing that the default state the default state becomes one of such enduring peace and joy that nothing can disturb it that's what's happening but you got to put in the work i mean i mean i could say just be it now and you could get a glimpse of that and you could go wow and there might be a shift that occurs but ultimately you got to do the practices to get you to the point where that state becomes the default on that. I did that once. Yeah. It was a really good feeling. <laughs> How did you do that? Just, I guess I said to myself, I've got a choice here, and I just, I guess, what detached, and and I was just felt so good and free. It all just, yeah, felt free as felt so much stronger. And did the other you come back again? Um, no, well, no, not, not straight away. Fantastic. So this that is was just, um, I think, because I was meditating a fair bit, and it just, it just, it surprised me, mm. you know. And I still think it. I think, wow, that really did happen. And it's so the so old you is not there anymore because when you get that, when that opens up, you can't go back. You can't become unaware again. When the, when the shutters have come up the blinds have come up or the curtains have been drawn and you see you can't return to the state of unknowing it's a very good feeling that's liberation i mean in a sense that is a glimpse of the liberated state and nothing changed externally nothing changed it's just the lights went on it just happened so yeah i don't think it won't don't try too hard it will happen that's fantastic. Are you getting a sense of what we're talking about here? Are you getting glimpses of it? Already you will be getting glimpses. The thing is that initially it's so obvious that you miss it. It's not that it's far away, this experience. It's very close. In fact, it's there all the time, but we're not seeing it because it's so evident. It's like saying, become aware of the now was can you can there ever not be a now it has to be there <laughs> so this state has to be there because it's it's your isness it's your being that's it but what gets in between you and it is the mind especially the egoic mind and the narrative that goes you're not good enough or they said this or i'm going to get that person or you know that's the only thing standing between you and the permanent experience of this state is just that the narrative or the or more than that it's the identification it's believing those thoughts you can have the thoughts but why why do you have to keep subscribing to them it's like you know they send you a magazine remember magazines before the internet and when i was little i tested my parents to um, get me a subscription of Look and Learn magazine. Do you remember Look and Learn? This is in the 60s. Nope. And I used to get it. It would come rolled up really tight with an elastic band on it once a month at a low on the front lawn. This is when newsagents delivered things as well. I don't know if they still do. And I would get this thing and I would unroll it and it would be the latest science stuff. I was into all that stuff look and learn it was about the world and that was the subscription but eventually the subscription runs out 
<laughs> right? Maybe I got old enough and I didn't need it and didn't feel I wanted it anymore. But look at all the things that we're subscribing to in terms of beliefs that we have, beliefs about ourselves. Why don't we start cancelling a few of those subscriptions? If they're not serving us, cancel the subscription. Right? You'll still be okay. I still carried on without Look and Learn magazine. <laughs> You know, I maybe don't appear to have suffered. Apparently not. <laughs> I'm probably benefited, but you know, the time came where I outgrew the subscription. So the time is coming now where you can outgrow the beliefs that are holding you back. That's the key to this. Do you know what your th those beliefs are that you're holding? You don't have to share them today, but um, are you aware of the fact that you're governed by beliefs? Yes. And some of them are positive and some of them are negative. But all of them are limiting in the sense that even those are not who you are. But let's start on the negative beliefs. That's a good place to start. What are the beliefs that you're holding about yourself that are not serving you anymore? And when you go into these states, you can start to unpack some of that. When we do Yoga Nidra, it's fantastic for going into those beliefs, into all the baggage. And you just start cutting it loose, cutting them adrift. You don't need to carry... Um, I spoke to an Aboriginal healing elder, remember I told you that time? And he said... Um, he said his uncle, who was a elder as well, had said, you see all those road trains? They were in the desert. All those road trains that drive past? trucks with other carrying trailers, maybe two trailers. He said, you've got to drop them off, drop off, decouple the trailer, decouple it. In other words, relinquish, release that baggage, those beliefs that are not serving you, let them go. But that can be easier said than done. And this is why we need these techniques. The processes actually bring us to the state, to the experience where we can let them go. But for the moment, just become, start becoming aware of them. This is where introspection and the questions, the question, who am I? Do you do that? Who am I? You ever ask yourself, who are you? And the answer is not, I'm Marissa or Brent. And the answer is not, I'm a mother or a husband or a teacher. That is an aspect, but that's not who you are, ultimately, well, in the sense that we're talking about it. We have to inquire into the essence of who we are. Who is that? What is that? When we meditate, what is that state? State of consciousness. Yeah, but I mean, these are words, but the thing is the experience when you're there when you go deep, 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 deep into the state and then you're there and then you can say you plant the thought who is this? and you don't have to intellectually it's not an intellectual exercise, right? it's not like you go through this if I say who am I often enough I'm going to get the answer it's more about you release it into the stillness it's almost an intention you release it deep and then one day you have that experience suddenly you go I get it it works yeah everything you <laughs> said was true everything I read in those books is true but for a long time you're reading it and you're hearing it and you're going yeah but do you ever get to that yeah but like you're listening to me and part of you is going the ego is saying yeah but because the ego hates this stuff. The egoic mind hates this idea that you can be infinite, that you can be without an identity that it governs. So the ego is not our friend <laughs> in, this, in this process. The ego is the thing that has to be... Um, has to be relinquished. And the way that you relinquish the ego is not to fight the ego. You don't get out there with your, you know, when they fence, they, they have rapiers, 
you don't have a rapier you're not jousting with the ego because if you do that the ego is going to win because that's the ego's game the ego's game is to engage you engage you with its agenda and start to convince you that this stuff is all pie in the sky or yeah but you know the yeah but thing so the way to approach the ego is to firstly acknowledge acknowledge its presence it has a function in the sense that it's there to keep mind and body together keep the physical body alive some sense of separation is necessary but the key to managing the ego is to de-energize it to take its oxygen away by not feeding it with emotional energy that is supporting its theories about who you are so when the ego says if the thought comes I am inadequate or what's another egoic thought or I am superior that's the classic example of ego isn't it that we think the ego is this really arrogant thing but the ego is equally the victim that's ego as well the vi victim thoughts control thoughts superior thoughts these are all egoic anything that is me I or my is egoic so the key to addressing the ego and to moving through it and beyond it is to acknowledge it and then to bring the awareness back to something other than it because that what the ego feeds on is awareness it feeds on attention it feeds on emotional energy so the more that if you're caught in a situation of conflict where, see the ego feels like it's finite and vulnerable and it has to be defended so the ego is the thing that will engage in a conflict the absolute nature of self has no interest in conflict it's beyond conflict there's nothing to defend when you are everything what is there to defend right do you see what I'm saying but when you're if when you're caught in egoic mind you, you know when someone says uh, he said that to me and I couldn't let it go <laughs> right I couldn't let that pass you ever hear people say that I couldn't let it pass that is so characteristically egoic and I'd say well why not well because and then the ego comes in with its script because if I let that pass then he would think this and then that would happen and this would happen and then who would I be and the question is well then who would you be wouldn't self still be self and this is where you pull the rug from the egos when you call it out on its own game and you start to challenge the stories that it tells you about yourself and you stop real you stop associating with that and you should try it I mean what's there to lose try doing the opposite of what the ego would ask you to do let's say someone I mean this is really hard for people someone insults you has anyone insulted you lately Have you felt insulted what is it that is insulted Ego. Ego. Insult. So the fodder. What is it? Grist for the mill, for the egoic mill. I felt so. In what about embarrassment? That's a beauty. That's a real ego function. I felt so embarrassed. <laughs> Do you ever hear people say that? What is it that's embarrassed? Can the self be embarrassed? The large S self? How can that be embarrassed? The ego can be embarrassed. You know, what will people think of me? How about that? Is that egoic? So you start to tag all the egoic thoughts. You watch them and you can go, that's an egoic one. And you start to call them out because you are now in this observer state. Let's say in meditation is a good place to do it. Or now after you leave here, and let's say a thought comes to you 
you can classify your thoughts. You can be the scientist and say, well, okay, what about I need to get pick up some milk on the way home. Is that an egoic thought? No, that's just a functional thought. Or what about um, I need to solve this problem? No, not egoic. I broke the door handle in my car. So I've ordered a new one. I have to figure out how to fit it. So there's a great YouTube video and I know how to do it. So I'm going to do that. But it's going to involve mind. It's going to involve action. It's going to involve interaction with physical things. Is that egoic? No, none of that's egoic. But um, someone calls me up and abuses me and I get upset. That's classic ego. So you see, you start to go, okay. And then you start to become much more judicious, you know, selective about which thoughts you want to believe. What if you stop believing all the thoughts that people told you about yourself that made you feel bad? My teacher used to say, I can cook a meal for you, but you don't have to eat it. In other words, I can serve up some behavior to you, but you don't have to take it on. And here's another great one. She made me feel so bad. Do you ever get that? She made me, he made me feel so bad. Can anyone make you feel anything without your consent? Unless you agree to allow to take those feelings on and to appropriate them. Can they actually tie you down in a chair and, you know, beat you with these feelings and make you like inject them in intravenously and now you become that? No, that's not how it works. You have to take them on voluntarily. You have to give them permission to feel this way. If you were detached, feeling very still and peaceful and just observing and someone serves you up an insult, what are you going to do with that? Well, it still might affect you. It still may make you feel different from perfection. And you can deal with it. Um, but wait. But what is it that's feeling that? It's the individual oneself rather than somebody making you feel that. So um, the way one would deal with it if one is dealing with it in um, a calm way is mm. to say, I'm feeling X or I'm feeling Y, not you're making me feel that. Or, right. Uh, Whose feeling is it? Because of what it's you've ego. done, it's my hmm? feeling. It's, still it's your feeling. Yeah. So you've taken it on. You've, you've adopted it. Or you've allowed that feeling to rise up within you in response to that. Yeah. Right. But the, my point is a bigger point than that. My point is that feeling that arises is not you. It's just a movement within mind that what if the what if you hooked into the opposite feeling of that by choice if you could direct let, let's say this let's say someone does something someone does an action in that moment and this is where you need to be pretty present actually part of the solution part of this this is a good tip for you there's a little window always at the moment before that feeling arises in you. There's always a little moment where if you're present and alert and you're watching for it, you will see that any moment now, if you allow things to run as they normally do, that the pattern will repeat itself and that stimulus will cause this response. But in that moment, you could divert divert the situation and send it through let it through to the keeper they say you know that saying this time when that happens I am going to have the opposite feeling towards that person instead of feeling 
offence by them or annoyance or hurt, I'm going to feel compassion for them. So basically what you're doing is it's, a, it's an intervention where you are breaking the cycle that normally occurs cause and effect and instead you're using an intervention which is well for them to have said that to me now or to have done that indicates to me that they must be suffering in some way. But the, the big question here is does one verbalise that so that the other party understands where you're coming from um, or does one just back off from it go into oneself and find the real peace and, and stillness in oneself mm -hmm. that's a matter of judgment but I would say do, is it your role to change them well, it's not a matter of whether you're trying to change them, it's really... Well, to show them the effect of what they've done, is I think what you're saying. Well, I think in, um, certainly in counselling, mm. one is given those kinds of um, indications that it's, uh, if, you're, if you're dealing in conflict situations, mm. that it is important to let the other person know mm -hmm. how you're feeling. That's, point, that but this isn't, this isn't counselling. No, no it, it, it won't change it the other person's perception or their reality. Oh. All you can deal with is your reality. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm hearing the meditation yeah. message too. I'm hearing yeah. it myself. Mm. But I've also observed how other people deal with some of these situations. Yeah, but see, and when you're in, in the middle of it, you, it's very difficult, mm -hmm. unless you've really had good practice at meditation, mm. to be able to respond appropriately or, or even not to respond, mm. to make that decision well, see, like I, this. That's right. I think we're talking about two different things here. That the, the psychological counsellor is still functioning at the level as if there were two separate beings that are in conflict. The yogi has moved beyond that and doesn't see that thing as other to itself. It's just a movement within consciousness, an energy, as it were, being projected by in, in time with some degree of will at another thing. But the transcendent state sees this as just a movement of energy. It has no significance. It has no meaning. There is no import. There is nothing that turns on this that is of any long-term consequence from the standpoint of you as consciousness. So why engage? At that level I'm talking. What the yogi would say is, these are just two egos hitting up against each other. But if you are not that, uh, then what is the Wouldn't Doesn't this just perpetuate the cycle of separation? Like I say, the egoic mind doesn't like to hear this kind of thing because it says, but what about, what about me? What about my pride? What about my sense of worth? What about all that? How many times but, have we all heard this? Exactly. What about me? Exactly. It's said so much, but that's, so often. So um, the, the thing that seeks to defend itself and to correct the other and to signal to the other that that action is inappropriate is still ego. No, I'm, I'm, I understand all that. I'm just talking about the practical. Oh, and practical, practical practicalities of dealing. Okay, with situations that are difficult. Yeah, this is a great discussion. Is this a good discussion? It's very, very helpful discussion. You've always got a choice. That's the point. I think when you're in the position of the observer, where you've got that little window and you've got enough presence of mind. Um, to see what's going on before you react you've got you're in a very powerful position right then you're holding all the cards in that moment can you see because you can decide then whether you're going to act reactively or you're going to react according to some script of what should be done in this situation or whether you're going to just not say anything or whether you're going to move into your heart and just project be love in that moment you can do whatever you want in practically speaking i'm saying is what your question is and, it, it, and, and it, it you really say question, and, yeah. and it is not easy 
if you're outside of that window and the reaction and the energy and the, the conflict is starting to arise up in you, then it gets hard. If you've missed the window, it starts to get hard. But you can't fix other people. No. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really going back into uh, the history of my career. Mm. And uh, I've spoken to you from time to time about the World Bank, and there was um, one particular gentleman who was Indian, and he was the calmest, most um, understanding, um, beautiful person. Mm. And he never, ever allowed himself to be affected negatively by what his staff said, or what his peers said, or what his bosses said to him. He was very senior. Mm. Um, and he and I used to talk a lot because we were the same level. Mm. Uh, I didn't work for him, he didn't work for me. Uh, but I really admired him a lot. And his staff used to say to him, how do you do that? Mm. And he would say, well, I meditate. <laughs> right? So Indian, um, a lot of our employees at the World Bank were Indian. Right. And uh, then on the other hand, in that same organisation, I had a boss, now this fellow was my boss, and he used to let go of his anger very, very often. And so looking at the contrast between those two people, it's quite clear you can't change them, mm. quite clear. Mm. The question is, how do you get yourself to, to the state where you're so familiar with the goodness of yourself mm -hmm. and the purity of yourself Mm. that you actually don't need to think about it. Mm -hmm. Practice. It is practice. Yeah, that's but, what I was saying I mean, earlier. Even on. things like goodness and purity and all of that form away. Because it's just being. You're just being. Mm. There's no... But you do use the word perfect sometimes. Well, I do. Uh, in the sense that I'm not talking about perfect in a relative uh, sense. No, I understand that. Perfect as in Mr. You know, goody goody two shoes, whatever. No. That never never swears or never gets. I mean, anger and all these emotions are are are, um, are authentic responses, but they're all operating at a certain level of being. I'm not saying. I'm certainly not saying suppress anger. It's not. This is none of this is about repressing emotions. This is more about transcending. This is about moving to a higher, let's say, vibrational state, a higher plane of understanding. Where you see what's really going on and what's really going on is these are just egos that are just dancing with each other so everything all comes back to the awareness really it's always awareness yeah. and so in, in terms of the practical guidance in a situation like that I, a yogi would say remember in that moment who it is who who is observing what is it that well, is saying well th this this indian colleague of mine um told me that the way the way he does it mm -hmm. you know, people say to him how do you do it, mm -hmm. it and he says do what yeah. and and basically his his answer to me because we spoke a lot about the, these kinds of things because I was in the same position as him I had staff who were difficult from time to time yeah. or had problems of their own from time to time mm -hmm. um, and he basically said that he his um, purpose in life is such that whenever he encounters another person after the encounter is finished or at the end of the encounter the other person he's been meeting with or connecting with feels far better than they did before it mm. and he consciously thinks about that mm. in the way he deals with people mm. And I, I think that's just added, if you add that onto the, all, the, the confidence that one gets in oneself and the calmness one gets in oneself from meditating and, yeah. and doing that well, that makes a good combination. Definitely. I mean, this is all good stuff. And the other thing I've found very helpful in the past, and I, don't ask me how this works. I mean, I th we could come up with an explanation. But if there's someone that is giving you a hard time, that is an obstruction in your life, that is, um, um, you know, challenging you, then 
when you meditate, at the end of your meditation, you know how we did before with the, this? Mm. Hold them in front of you, in your mind's eye, mm. and just send them unconditional love. And do it with the most intense feeling that you can muster. And you don't think about whether they're deserving or not deserving or what that bastard said to you last week or anything <laughs> like that. You are just holding them in your presence and you're channeling unconditional love to them. And you're saying, that's it, that's it, that's all you're doing. And I've found this has happened time and again, not that I have that many difficult people to deal with, but there are some. The next time you see them, it's almost as if they're a different person. I swear. Hey, how are you going? It's like all whatever that was there is not there anymore. Mm. I you, suspect that that's what this colleague of mine did. That's I would a say. result of, of his behavior. If look, let's give you a very we've got to stop in a minute, but the short explanation is this. If we are, if this if these entities in this room are all just different aspects of consciousness, we are tied together energetically. Mm. Quantum theorists would say we are quantum entangled. Right, so what happens to X is felt by Y and vice versa. I think of you, tomorrow you call me on the phone. That kind of stuff, we get it all the time. Within this field of consciousness, whatever we project to another will come back. Right? Cause and effect. If I send love to that, love being the highest vibrational state that there is within consciousness, if that is my weapon, as it were, if that is my tool, then transformation will occur by that means. By the way, unconditional love is without ego. That's why it's unconditional. Conditional love is what do I get back for it. Mm. Unconditional love, ego is absent completely. And so you're drawing on the power of the state. The state, pure presence, divine, perfect, whatever you want to call it. Oh, it's your turn now. <laughs> that which is the highest expression of, your, of that reality, which is you, is what will transform. Be that. And, and then another thing that um, the successor of my teacher says is you become, <laughs> become benevolent. Become, become, take on your, let your nature be one of the ocean or the sun that doesn't judge who it shines on. The ocean doesn't exclude people according to its concept of their worth. Mm, good analogy. Right? The sun shines equally on all mm. beings, irrespective of their virtue or not. That, that, when you're living in this state, that you experience today when you're meditating, when that becomes your enduring experience of reality, these things flow naturally. But until they do, just use intention to do it anyway. You can still do it, you know. It doesn't yeah, that, that's true, that's true. So I think that's um, a practical guidance. So, Melissa, when we talk about meditation here, we're also using the practical application of what we learn in everyday situations so that it's not just something we do you know in the comfort of our own home but it's something we take out into the world and because we're becoming more luminous or whatever more in touch then we start to share that around and then then everyone benefits that's why we go into these long sort of psychological discussions Sorry, I, I no no it's good it's fantastic I mean this is what we're here for is that everyone goes away and you've got some new way of being in relation to situations but the point I was trying to say before the window that little window that presents itself in that moment where there is where you haven't responded in that is that's your power that's your opportunity. And use it. Use it. Mm. And if you, you know, I think experiment with that and, mm. and see how, see how life becomes. I'm not working anymore. So. The thing is, but 
conflict when you and the other thing that the Buddha used to say and Dalai Lama says is that if you want to create peace in the world first become peace yourself mm. and what I found is that you don't attract conflict situations to you the conflict situation is only arising to show you something mm. as well remember the world is a mirror mm. and everything that's happening is there to um, show you something that you have to learn so once you become embedded in the state of pure peace and you know light or whatever it is that you feel that you don't the challenges are, aren't there anymore and then you can just be free like the little girl I saw dancing down on the beach today I was thinking about that and the kid is really in the present without effort the children are like that, no effort, just present, so simple. And so perfect. And so unaffected, that's right. Alright, we're going to wrap up now. Thank you very much. Any questions? That was a great discussion. Okay, I'll put this online and we'll call it um, something about the window. Okay, we'll see you next Thank week. You.